In his book, God is Closer Than You Think, John Ortberg tells the story of Father Damien, a priest who served lepers in the Hawaiian Islands. Ortberg writes, For 16 years, Father Damien lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch, preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools, bands, and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He got close. For this, the people loved him. Then one day he stood up and began his sermon with two words, We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. Concerning the incarnation of Christ, Ortberg goes on to say, One day God came to earth and began his message, We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us. Now he was one of us. Now he was in our skin. Now we were in it together. Our theme for this special Advent edition of Preaching Today is God in Our Sorrow. Welcome. I'm your host, Eric Reed, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you some of the finest preachers and sermons in North America. Preaching Today is a monthly resource produced by the editors of Leadership Journal and PreachingToday.com. Our goal is to inspire you in your preaching by letting you hear, read, and learn from some of today's most effective sermons. In 2007, Preaching Today has asked several well-known preachers to give us their favorite message. Continuing this series, we have Mark Buchanan with his sermon, God in Our Sorrow. Buchanan shows us how the Advent is where God meets us in our sorrow. Mark Buchanan is lead pastor of New Life Community Baptist Church in Duncan, British Columbia, and author of Hidden in Plain Sight, The Secret of More. Here is Mark Buchanan with God in Our Sorrow. I think fundamentally, what we can say about Advent, which simply means an arriving or an appearing, something we hoped for, something we anticipated, something we had predicted, has finally happened. The coming of this long-anticipated thing has, has arrived. What we can say about it is the way God pulled off Advent was different from how we expected. We expected a warrior. We expected someone to come with great military power and dramatic flair to solve all our problems. He came in this utmost obscurity. He came to this couple who were migrants and then refugees. He came uh, where his first cries would have ricocheted off a stone wall in the back of a cave and startled dumb beasts. It wasn't the advent that we were expecting. It was the advent that we were needing. <laughs> the one who would come in, in all our littleness and all our lostness and all our seeming, does anybody care? Do I matter in any way? And this morning what I want to talk about is how God meets us in our sorrow. We're going to talk about the meaning of Advent and how God 
uniquely meets us in the whole range of our human experience. The good, the bad, the, the bright, the dark, the up, the down. God meets us in those places. This is the meaning of Advent. How good it is that he didn't appear as we had anticipated as a whole nation had kind of looked for this coming of the warrior. Instead, we get the coming of the child, the coming of the the little one, the coming of the crucified one. How good it is, really, because it's good news for those of us who sometimes feel the weight of just living. There's a passage in Isaiah 53, and uh, I'm not going to take the time to read the whole of Isaiah 53, though it's absolutely magnificent. This is the prophet Isaiah powered by the Holy Spirit, forecasting 800 years before it happens, the coming of the Messiah is too bad. It is actually tragic that the Jewish people didn't treasure this and understand this particular text that did come so long before Christ appeared because it really is the premier text to tell us that this Messiah is not going to show up with this military prowess that you are hoping or thinking he will that he's going to come instead, as Isaiah said, as a suffering servant. But there's this passage in verse um, 3 that I want to make a few comments on. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Description of the Christ um, in his life and especially in his crucifixion. One of the beautiful things about Isaiah 53 is it combines the beginning with the end in terms of the, the ministry and the presence and the advent of Jesus. It combines the cradle, the manger with the cross. It combines the incarnation, the God coming into human form with the Redemption, God using His presence with us to pull us out of our trouble and our and the and our sin. It combines Advent with atonement, this appearing with this forgiving. That's all packed into this incredibly rich passage. And if you haven't read that particular piece of scripture, or you haven't read it in a long time, I I would highly commend. It's a great place to begin your reflection on Advent. God with us, God for us. But he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with sorrow or pain, depending on how you translate it. That word familiar, it looks like yada, 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 yada. It's yada. It's yada. And yada is a Hebrew word meaning familiar, but um, it's got a wide, wide range of meanings. But in this particular context, it means that he had intimate first-hand experience with pain or with suffering. Intimate first-hand experience. He was not just taking notes. There was a sense in which God in Christ actually experienced the sorrow and the suffering. He was no stranger to this. In the mystery and the power of the incarnation of the advent of God, we could say 
Indeed, that's where God becomes present to us in these things where we, he enters in to the pain, into the sorrow. He is familiar with suffering. He has tasted it. He has firsthand experience. He knows what it's about. And the good news in that is simply this. There is no valley of shadow of death that any of us can go through. That God hasn't already through Christ gone before us and mapped out the terrain and walked alongside of us. How good it is, what great good news, that we did not get the Messiah that we had been hoping for. (laughs) But the Messiah of God's choosing, this man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. I want you to jump over to John 11. The story of Lazarus. We have an episode here in the life of Jesus that I think kind of illustrates this man of sorrows familiar with suffering and demonstrates to us how Jesus brings consolation in our sorrow. Jesus sometimes allows us to taste sorrow. Jesus enters into our sorrow. He's not afraid to step into our our grief. Sometimes we kind of mystified by uh, how our, you know, our sorrow, we go through these seasons of sorrow and, and kind of want to blame him, even though he's present with us in it. So I just want to show you that. And flip over to John 11. This is a story of Jesus here in the news that Lazarus is, his friend Lazarus is sick. And what we have first in verse 4 is the news comes to Jesus and he says to his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So in the midst of this imminent sorrow, there's somebody you love who's sick. Jesus offers words of comfort. As, As we sort of contemplate things that might be very painful to us, there's this... Offering of words of comfort. This isn't, this isn't what you think it is, Jesus says. This isn't going to end the way you think it's going to end. I'll be glorified. God will be glorified. It's all good. It's all good. So verse 4 is in the midst of our about to taste sorrow, Jesus offers consolation. In verse 6, it starts to take a different turn. And it says that uh, when they heard Lazarus was sick, when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So there's this delay that we find out proves tragic. And, And so Jesus, even though he's offering these words of consolation, uh, in verse six, there's an action or a failure to act that begins to kind of precipitate suffering. Now now there's going to be sorrow because of Jesus' failure to act. In verse 16, Jesus now is ready to go and uh, visit the place where Lazarus is in Bethany. And Thomas makes his comment in verse 16, Let us also go that we may die with him. So there's this understanding in the part of Thomas that uh, a following of Jesus, the man of sorrow, familiar suffering, is a risky business. It's a risky business that uh, there may be words of consolation on the way, but um, this followership, this commitment to Christ sometimes puts us in the way of danger, puts us in the way of sorrow. Let us go with him that we might die with him. 
you know, I don't know how long you've been following Jesus, but you find that when Christ calls us, he's not always calling us to the thing that's safest. Anybody kind of figured that out yet? You know, the thing that's easiest, the thing that's least painful. He's going to say, well, I'm going to go and chart the course so that, that you know, every step you take, it's going to be, you know, upward, onward, blessing upon blessing. That He often charts a course for us that initially we think, why there? Why that? I look at where I believe God's leading us as a church, and uh, I think, could you pick something easier? <laughs> could you pick something that involves sort of a less sacrifice, less less danger for us? But Jesus often goes in these places where our response needs to be Thomas-like. Well, let's go with him, that we can die with him. <laughs> this is dangerous. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here again, we have Jesus who's stalled. He's failed to act in an appropriate or timely manner as far as we can see or Mary can see and those around him can see. And therefore, he's brought this sorrow upon this family, upon these sisters. And she's just rancorous with blame. I mean, you ever had this kind of prayer, this kind of dialogue with Jesus? If you haven't, I, I want to suggest that you need to kind of keep moving on where there's a, a level of intimacy with Jesus where sometimes you're just like, huh? What was that about? If you had done this, if you had, if you had acted accordingly, if you had listened to my instructions to you, <laughs> we could have had this one solved, but you botched, you bungled it, and now look where we are. I love the honesty of this. I love the honesty of Mary. I think I said once, you know, Mary is the one uh, who, who gets really kind of high praises in Luke's gospel, Luke 10, where she's sitting at Jesus' feet and listening and Martha's grumpy in the kitchen and all that. And, you know, Mary's chosen the better thing. But here, Mary's a bitter one. And there's a sense in which that intimacy that we have with God makes us a little more vulnerable to disappointment with God. If you had been here, I thought we had a different kind of relationship here. Remember when I used to sit and listen to you? I thought there was something implied in that kind of relationship, that closeness, where you were going to deliver what I asked you. You were going to give me the desires of my heart. What happened here? Well, God allows these sisters to taste sorrow. Verse 33 then introduces a new phase of this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So Jesus steps in to the suffering of others and the sorrow of others. In some ways, they want to blame him for the sorrow coming upon them. It was your your failure to act. But Jesus sees it, and rather than standing aloof or saying, listen, guys, I told you this this is going to all end well, as he sees the grief of the sisters and he sees the grief of the friends, he steps into that grief. And what they're tasting, he begins to taste as well. A man of sorrow and familiar suffering. Now listen to the next verse, 35 and 38. Jesus wept in 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Not only has Jesus stepped into the suffering of others, now he's going through his own. Now Jesus is experiencing the very grief that he's observing. 
And he's saying, I cannot stand back from that. I am a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That you're so overcome with just how ugly and brutal and random life can be sometimes. I know what that's like. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my gut is actually what this means when it says he was deeply moved. He felt it in his gut. 39 through 44, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But Jesus effectively, as he's brought sorrow to people, as he's entered sorrow with people, as he's tasted his own sorrow, now comes and acts in the way that we had hoped he'd act. He says, take the stone away, let him come out, calls forth the man from, from the grave. And so then there's this entry in so that he might pull us out. And he might bring an answer, bring consolation into our sorrow. Uh, interestingly, in verse 12, chapter 10, he's consoled them. But now we find out that Lazarus, the man raised from the dead, the man who um, Jesus has dramatically demonstrated how he can not only enter and taste sorrow, but how he can overcome sorrow. Now he's put Lazarus in danger by raising from the dead and people want his head. People want to kill him. There's a sort of cycle that goes on in following Jesus where what I'm trying to say is the incarnation means simply this, or at least this, that a man of sorrow familiar with suffering sometimes will allow sorrow to come into your life. I don't understand all the mystery of that, but that's just true. Job says that's true. He will taste it with you. He will taste it himself. He will enter it with you. He will bring consolation in the way that only Christ can bring consolation. But if we're really intent on following him, we're not out of the woods until we get home. (laughs) And there's this ongoing kind of, we're walking in sacrifice and risk with such a savior. Two things in Philippians 3 that Paul says, as we kind of embrace the Christ who embraces us in our sorrow and our suffering. In uh, verse 10 of 3, Paul says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In um, one translation, this participation in suffering is the fellowship of sharing in the suffering is the way it's translated. Simple point I want to make is this, is that Paul says is that we kind of walk alongside and understand that Christ comes alongside of us in our times of sorrow and loss. That that's a route to what he calls becoming attainers to the resurrection. We attain somehow to the resurrection. What does that mean? Does it mean we earn the resurrection? Of course not. What it means is we begin to really value the meaning of resurrection as we walk alongside a Savior who is with us in our sorrow, in our loss, in our sadness, in our suffering. We really begin to understand the value of what it is to be a resurrection of people, a people who live in the hope of resurrection. The mess that we see, the pain that we see, that sometimes Jesus consoles on this earth and sometimes doesn't, that it finally has a, an ultimate answer in the reality of resurrection. We become attainers to that. We really understand and take hold of what that is. 
The second thing that I think comes as we understand this is the kind of Savior we love and serve and has come near to us is Paul talks about it a little later in chapter 3 is that we become anticipators of heaven. Attainers to resurrection and anticipators of heaven. He says that, you know, we um, eagerly expect a Savior who is coming to transform our lowly bodies to be like his. And so we live in this eager expectation of that. Uh, you've heard me on this theme before. That phrase that you, if you don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good, is completely bogus. People who are heavenly minded actually become of earthly good. It's the people who are earthly minded, Paul says in Philippians, whose God is their stomach, whose mind is on earthly things, who become useless to both earth and to heaven. And there's something about this God uh, who comes near to us, who is incarnated, and the advent of whom is a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. As he walks alongside of us, both consoling us and entering into and tasting the sorrow that is part of the journey through earth. Something about that sharpens our instinct and our anticipation that though this life is has its good moments, this life is not enough and not there all there was to be. And we get a, a growing hunger and anticipation of things unseen, of things yet to be, things hoped for. I have this deepening love of the Savior who is promised resurrection and I eagerly anticipate because one day I get to be with him in heaven and get transformed to be like him. And my exhortation to you is be that kind of an attainer and that kind of an anticipator as you walk through this journey that you're on. In the following interview, Jeffrey Arthurs offers some helpful suggestions for preaching in fresh, memorable ways. Jeffrey Arthurs is Associate Professor of Preaching and Communication at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and author of Preaching with Variety. Here is Preaching Today's interview with Jeffrey Arthurs on Preaching with Variety. If I'm preaching without variety, what does that look like? Uh, What's the problem you're trying to solve with this book? The main problem I'm trying to solve relates to our use of the text. The Bible not only declares ideas, doctrine, truth, it not not only tells us what, it also declares that truth through a cornucopia of forms. It, It gives great attention to how, not just what. And it makes a difference whether the writer is choosing to express that truth through a story or a parable or through a commandment or a vision or a proverb. So I'm trying to heighten preachers' awareness of how the text communicates and not simply what it communicates. What is paramount? We always have to declare what what the Bible says. We don't make up the message, but how do we say it? How did God say it? How did the human author say it? So I'm trying to address the problem of flattening our approach to the Scripture by merely asking, what does it mean? I'm also trying to 
deal with the problem of boredom. Frankly, many of us uh, bore our listeners. The book doesn't major on that issue, but it's always lurking behind the pages, a uh, concern for the listener, audience analysis and adaptation. We want our preaching to be interesting and engaging and, when appropriate, imaginative. And also, this is not on the front and center stage uh, in the book, but I'm also addressing a problem related to the preacher himself or herself, and namely, we get bored with our own preaching. Preachers could use some variety, too, so that our preaching can be interesting and joyful and a task that we look forward to rather than, uh, here we go again, another Sunday, another sermon. The subtitle of your book is How to Recreate the Dynamics of Biblical Genres. Talk a little bit about that and, and what that means to you. Each genre, each way of communicating produces its own effects. It, uh, it moves us, it, it draws our minds and hearts differently in its own way. And I want to help preachers borrow and recreate those effects. For example, if a parable is open-ended and it leaves the mind you know, engaged and wondering, and it's not, not all tied up with a, a neat ribbon or with strapping tape, then we preachers should consider a more open-ended sermon also. Now, I know there's pastoral considerations and theological ones there, but, but we should consider the possibility of open-endedness that leaves the mind engaged rather than, as I say, wrapping it all up tightly. In the book, I say that we're not formal fundamentalists. We don't have to use the exact same form as the text. I'm not sure what that would look like, you know, when preaching from apocalypse or poetry. Do we have to sing our sermons? We're not formal fundamentalists, but we do want to ask this question of how is it communicating and see if we can recreate in our sermons a similar dynamic. The use of the imagination, the use of two-way communication, engaging the listener, the use of an open-endedness, the use of visual communication, or a different tone, a straightforward, clear, three points, point one, point two, point three uh, sort of approach. And that's what you mean when, in the book, you say we should replicate not just the technique of the text, but actually we replicate the impact of the text. That's exactly right. We're looking at the impact of the text, and uh, we can learn from the techniques of the text, and we may be able to use those in our sermons, but not necessarily so. My example with music is probably a good example. I don't think we're going to sing our sermons or chant our sermons, whatever they did with uh, poetry in the ancient world, but maybe our sermons can be rhythmic and pulsing and flow uh, as the text does with a synonymous parallelism, maybe something more like African-American preaching that uses those techniques so uh, beautifully. Let's choose uh, one of the genres in your book and talk about that, how we can preach with variety in a particular genre. Uh, I think one of my favorites is Proverbs. They are short, as you know, they are pithy, they are general statements that capture so much of life. So let's first of all examine what is this form, what is this genre of proverb, and then we'll move into 
how can I reproduce those dynamics in my sermons? One of the most obvious generic features of Proverbs is that they're short. This is the shortest of all genres. In Hebrew, a typical proverb can be as few as six words, many times not more than eight words. So they are boiled down, they are concise, they are compacted uh, gems of uh, language. Because they're short, they don't have time and space to be expansive. They cannot cover all cases. They, They can't make disclaimers and expand in that way. So they are observations of general phenomena, and they are generally true, just like our English proverbs, a stitch in time saves nine. Uh, That is generally true. If we act early, we can save time later, a stitch in time. Proverbs are observations. Most of them are written in the indicative voice. They imply an imperative command. But they get at that command by just stating the way things are. For example, a proverb might say, a gossip separates friends. The intention of the proverb is to say, hey, don't be a gossip. Hey, if you do this, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You're going to separate friends. But it just makes the observation. Gossip separates friends. Behind that proverb, which is so pithy and boiled down, Behind it are multiple, multiple case studies. The wise teacher, the sage, has looked around society, and he has seen a gossip, and look what happened. Those friends were separated. And then he's gone to the grocery store, and he's heard the employees gossiping, and and he imagines, well, that's going to separate some people. And in his own church, he he knows the, uh, the results of gossip. It separates people, separates even friends. And so he boils it down into a general statement, a honed and crafted proverb, gossip separates friends. But as I say, behind it lies observation, multiple case studies. Behind a proverb uh, is a story or many stories. Another feature of proverbs, besides being short and uh, general observations, is that they use uh, figurative language, just like all poetry. Proverbs are sort of a subgenre of the larger genre of poetry. They're a type of poetry. So they have figurative language. The tongue stands for the awesome power of speech. The tent stands for the family unit or even the clan. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9 talks about better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Well, obviously, it doesn't mean literally uh, a dog and a lion. Those images are standing for something else. So figurative language. Another feature of Proverbs is that they use sound values. Now, we lose a lot of that translating into English, and because we're not exactly sure what the ancient Hebrew would have sounded like. But but even then, uh, we can pick up on rhythm and alliteration and assonance, the the, uh, vowel sounds, and uh, they use these sound values. Once again, just like Proverbs worldwide, uh, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, One of those Proverbs that uses sound values would be Proverbs 16, 18. A literal translation would be, before breaking, pride. Before stumbling, haughtiness. Just six words, 
concise with punch, uh, boiled down, and those different rhythmic units there and sound values. One other feature of Proverbs is that they are written from a teacher to a student or a parent to a child or the king to the, uh, the courtier. And so they have an instructional, authoritative tone to them. My son, listen to my words, and they will give you chokma, skill in living, practical, real-life uh, savvy in making your way through this world in the fear of God. So they have that instructional or authoritative tone to them, even while just making observations about life. Okay, so what are some more things we could do when preaching Proverbs that we might not normally think of? Well, once again, we're not formal fundamentalists. We're not going to preach sermons in eight words, although that might be interesting (laughs) (laughs) to try that sometime. But what we want to do is borrow the or recreate the effect, this pithy, this punch, this memorability. Some of the rhetorical effects of Proverbs are that they enhance memory. You know, they're real easy to remember. I've already mm-hmm. quoted two today, just because they're in my brain. The birds mm-hmm. of a feather flock together, a stitch in time saves nine. The sound values, the shortness, the brevity uh, enhance memory. Some suggestions I have for preaching Proverbs would be use case studies. Alice McKenzie has written about Proverbs, and she talks about shining the spotlight. A proverb shines the spotlight on certain circumstances in life. In what circumstances does this proverb about alcohol and drinking, what does it illumine? Probably not every use of alcohol, but it certainly does say some things about drinking alcohol. So examples, case studies, stories, self-disclosure, you know, personal examples, mm-hmm. uh, I think work well for Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Another suggestion is to really craft our central idea. That's stock and trade for uh, preaching. We always want to have a memorable big idea. But when preaching from Proverbs, the importance seems to go up. A crafted, memorable, perhaps using sound values, perhaps borrowing the proverb's own movement, whether it's uh, an antithetical statement or a synonymous statement, we can serve our listeners by giving them a nugget to put in their pocket and carry out with them. I'll give you an example of crafting the central idea. I don't often do this, but I, I actually did make one that rhymes. And the reason I did it is because the proverb that I was working with rhymed. The proverb is the one about uh, the head of gray uh, is a crown of glory, and that the Hebrew uses the words ataret teperet, so it has that rhyme. So for my central idea, I said, a head of gray is a crown of glory at the end of a righteous story. That's good. Meaning... Your gray hair is glorious. It is a crown. It is the sign of achievement, the sign of a life well-invested, if it comes at the end of a righteous life, a righteous mm-hmm. story. I notice in your book that you, are, you talk about dueling Proverbs. What do you mean by that? Well, because Proverbs are so brief, they don't apply to all circumstances. And even in the book of Proverbs, sometimes they contradict each other. The, the chief example of that is the one where it says, 
do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. And then immediately after that, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Right. So they seem to deconstruct each other. They, they are dueling, but we just have to know how to handle Proverbs. The one applies to certain circumstances. The other applies to a different set of circumstances. So we can uh, show how the Proverbs, in a sense, duel with each other. Another way to, to have dueling Proverbs is to set a biblical proverb against a modern American proverb. We hear many proverbial statements in advertising. You know, you only go around once or, you know, uh, in essence, become rich, look out for number one, that kind of thing. Well, no, 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 that's not the biblical message. Here's a biblical proverb to duel with that modern American proverb. Finally, we have a sermon from Mike Woodruff called The Virgin Birth. Woodruff helps us not only affirm the virgin birth, but also understand how critical the doctrine is to the whole superstructure of the gospel. Mike Woodruff is senior pastor of Christ Church Lake Forest in Lake Forest, Illinois, and president of the Christian International Scholarship Foundation, a leadership development initiative that invests in the advanced theological education of international Christian leaders. Here is Mike Woodruff with The Virgin Birth. The Christmas narratives begin with the account of an angel appearing to a young, lower middle class, engaged but not yet fully married woman by the name of Mary, and telling her that though she was a virgin, she was going to give birth to the Messiah. This account, this claim, this notion that there could be a child without a human father meets with a variety of different responses. There are some who say absolutely no way. Miracles don't happen. This is a miracle. Can we not all simply be adults about this? It's pretty obvious what happened. Mary is not the first nor the last person to find herself in trouble, and so she starts telling stories. Hers is a little unique. A little gutsy, she's blaming God, but after all, since he's unlikely to show up and defend himself, it's not a bad line. But let's be honest. We know what happened. There is no virgin birth. There is a second camp made up of those who would profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, who would say, you know what, miracles do happen. But for whatever reason, and it, it varies, they would say, but this one didn't. Let's just set this in context and, and move on. The virgin birth is nothing we have to get too worked up about. She was probably just a young woman, and the term virgin was, was applied to her because she was so young. But, you know, sort of with a wink and, and a grin, they dismiss the virgin birth. Now, I have to tell you, there's, there are more people in this camp than I would have imagined. And in fact, this week I read about the number of clergy that placed themselves in this camp. Miracles occur, but not the virgin birth. I'm a little baffled how anyone uh, can sign up for that camp, because after all, if you are going to affirm this book, you're signing up for 
more than a few supernatural events. And as supernatural events go, to me anyway, the virgin birth is not a huge one. I mean, it's not up there with, with the resurrection. I don't know that it's up there with parting the Red Sea. It's certainly not up there with creating everything out of nothing. So I don't really get why you would pick up a red editor's pen and draw a line through the virgin birth. And I would want to ask you, if you find yourself in this camp, once you pick up that red pen, how is it that you figure out what you're going to leave and what you're going to mark out? I, I, don't, I don't know exactly how you uh, figure that out. And, and I sure would like to say that if you draw a red line through the virgin birth, you probably have no idea how significantly you are undermining the whole narrative of Christ's character. There's a third camp, and those in this third camp sign up for the virgin birth because it's in the book. And you have reached the point in your spiritual journey where you say, if it's in the book, I, I'm going to buy it because I buy the book. But in fact, you would be hard-pressed to explain why the virgin birth is important to defend. It, it's, it's in the Bible, and, and I, I don't want to dismiss the fact that you accept it because it's in the book. I, I have come to the conclusion that it's inconsistent for me to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, my Savior, President creation. He is the one through whom all things were created. He's all-knowing and all-powerful, but... I know better than he does about whether or not I can trust this book. It's clear that he trusts this book. It's clear that he holds this work in the highest regard. He says about the Old Testament, he didn't come to overturn it, but to fulfill it. And we see that Christ, when he is in difficult situations, is likely to quote out of the Old Testament. The one whose very words are inspired by God, because he is God, turns to Scripture when he finds himself in a difficult situation. It's obvious that his view of Scripture is up here, so I think that my view of Scripture has to be up here. So I don't want to undermine the idea that, that I believe in the virgin birth because it's in the book, but I sure would like to say that there's more reason than that. There is a fourth position, and this fourth position would be made up of those who not only affirm the virgin birth, but who understand how absolutely critical it is to the whole narrative, to the whole superstructure of the gospel. This is a foundational piece. And so it is my hope this morning to move as many of you as I can into the fourth camp. And I want to do that by making four observations. The first one is this. When we're talking about the virgin birth, it's, it's really important to remember that we're not talking about the virgin birth of you or of me. We're talking about the virgin birth of one who is eternal, of God himself. John 1 opens saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word, logos, being Jesus, in the beginning was the word. Not in the beginning, Jesus was created, or after a little while, Jesus was created, but in the beginning was the word. He was already there. 
In John 17, Jesus talks about the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the foundations of the world. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that Jesus was God himself in heaven and enjoyed the glory of God that was his, but he set aside all of that in order to be born, in order to take on a human body. He humbled himself to become a man, and not just a man, but a slave, and not just a slave, but a slave that would go to his death, and not just his death, but death on a cross. Jesus Christ is eternal. When we talk about the virgin birth, we're not talking about the birth of you or me. Our lives begin at conception. We didn't pre-exist our conception. We're not, we're not existing in some spiritual state on some shelf in heaven getting ready for God to pull us down and give us a body and send us down to live. We don't exist in some previous life form being reincarnated as a person. Our life begins at conception. Jesus Christ was present at creation. He is eternal. And this is a big point. As a matter of fact, back in the late 3rd century and early 4th century, a battle was fought over this. There was, a, there was a young, dynamic individual by the name of Arius who suggested that Jesus Christ was God-like, but not God, and in fact that he was made, and there was a time when Jesus was not. This was the, the line that he said. There was a time when Jesus was not. As a matter of fact, he not only said this line, he was, he was uh, clever enough to put this line to song. And it was part of the way that he spread his theology. And there were debates and shouting matches that led to riots with those who were walking around with placards saying, there was a time when Jesus was not. And those on the other side, those who were affirming the truth of Scripture who were singing other songs, among them one that we sing in the classic service with some frequency. We don't sing it as a fight song. Most people don't get that it's a fight song when we're singing it. We sing it in a very mellow way. But in fact, the Gloria Patri is a defense against Arianism. It's glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning. Jesus Christ was God in the very beginning, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Those were fighting words to defend the idea that Jesus Christ is eternal. When we talk about the virgin birth, let's please remember, we're not talking about the virgin birth of anyone other than God himself. Secondly, When we talk about the virgin birth, it's important to realize that the story doesn't begin with the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. It actually begins on page 2 of my Bible. The first hint that we have of the virgin birth occurs in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, what we refer to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first telling of the gospel. We find it here right after the curse, right after the fall has, has happened, and God is, is giving out the curse. He says in verse 14 of chapter 3, because you have done this, he's, he's talking to the serpent, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. Now, can I just make the observation that this is the only time in history that you would talk about a woman having a seed, right? 
The seed goes to the male. The woman has an egg or a womb. You don't talk about the seed of a woman. You talk about the seed of a man and the womb or the egg of a woman. But what we have here, and the Bible is consistent throughout, what we have here is the indication that Jesus does not have a human father. That he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just in Genesis 3, but we have this wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 7, writing a full 700 years before Christ would be born. The prophet Isaiah says in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. God with us. The, the E-L is, is the name of God. As a matter of fact, you can see it on some of these, uh, some of these banners. Elohim and El Elyon and El Shaddai and El Olam. The L means God and El Emanu means God with us. We have the prophecy 700 years before Christ that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin. Now, you may be aware that there are some who say that the word that is used here and translated virgin out of the Hebrew actually would better be translated as a young woman. That is partially true and very misleading. The word actually occurs nine times in the Old Testament. Of the other eight times, seven of them are clearly referring to a virgin, not a young woman. That's absolutely the case here. Let, let's, just, let's just place this in context. Here is the, the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord. I am going to give you a sign. This is how you will know for sure that God has sent his Messiah. And what is this sign? That he will be born of a young woman? Well, how exactly does that narrow things down? No, the sign will be that he will be born to a virgin. Furthermore, when this gets translated by Matthew in chapter 1, because Matthew will quote this, he will say all these things took place in order that the prophecy that was made by Isaiah may be fulfilled. And then he translates this, unto you will be born one who will be born to a virgin, and you will call him Emmanuel. When he translates that out of the Hebrew and he translates it into the Greek, the Greek word that he uses here can only refer to a virgin not a young woman. So, in terms of defending the virgin birth, we start with the idea that, that we're not talking about the, the birth of just anyone. We're talking about the birth of God himself. Secondly, we see this developed in the Old Testament. Then we further see it developed in the New. We have the Luke passage where Mary is visited by an angel. And after the angel gives his first greetings, the angel says what angels always say, either first or second, and that is, do not be afraid. Because our vision of angels is the, you know, the little precious moments figurines, and they are nothing like that. They terrify everyone, but, but the angel says, don't be afraid. You found favor with, with God. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. And Mary asks, how is that possible? Because I am a virgin. And in Matthew, the same thing is developed, this time around Joseph. Joseph is now expected to, to believe Mary when she says that she has no idea how she got pregnant, right? It was God. The Holy Spirit came upon me and I'm pregnant. And so Joseph 
who is engaged to this woman, and engagement at that, in that culture was much more serious than engagement in this culture. In essence, you were married, you just weren't living together for one year. And, and if, if your fiancé died during that year, you were considered uh, a widow. And if, if one of you were unfaithful, you were to be put to death. This was a serious relationship. At the end of one year, there would then be a, a seven-day wedding feast, as we just see described in Matthew 24, and then the marriage would be consummated. They're in this period. Mary goes away to visit her aunt, Elizabeth. She's gone for three months. When she comes back, she's pregnant. And Joseph knows He's not the father. And so he is making plans quietly to divorce her. He could publicly humiliate her. He doesn't want to do that, but he is quietly going to break this off. And the angel Gabriel is sent on a return visit to Nazareth to say, Joseph, don't do this. You are to marry this woman. What is conceived in her is of the Spirit of God. The virgin birth is an absolutely important, critical piece of the plan of God's salvation. We see it, by the way, uh, in most of the creeds. In the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, born of a Virgin Mary. You see it in the, the Nicene Creed as well. As a matter of fact, the Nicene Creed, while it doesn't state the virgin birth, goes to great length to make the point that Christ's birth was altogether different than anyone else's birth. That he was begotten of God, not made. And this word begotten, a little awkward in contemporary terms, but begotten means fathered by God. C.S. Lewis says when you beget something, you beget it after your own kind. So a human male would beget human children, and a beaver would beget little beavers, and a bird would beget eggs that would become birds. You beget after your own kind. The importance here is that God can make anything that he wants. I mean, he can make, he can make birds and beavers and planets and oceans. He can make anything. He can only beget after his own kind. And so in the Nicene Creed, we see the, the doctrine of the virgin birth protected when we read, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. They wanted to remove any doubt that Jesus' birth was not unique. Now, that builds the case to defend the idea of the virgin birth. But why is it so important that we defend it? In addition to the fact that it's there, it's clearly developed, it's not only in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, and we find it in the early church's earliest creeds. Why is there such a big deal made out of the virgin birth? It is because it is absolutely critical for our salvation that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. He and he alone is to be the mediator between God and fallen men. The one mediator. He is the unique Savior of the world, uniquely positioned to stand between God and man. He is the God-man. And this is what we needed 
in order for men to be reconciled with a holy God. Now, if this were the second century, the sermon would, would emphasize something completely different because in the second century, people had no problem affirming that Jesus was God, but they often waffled as to whether or not they believed that he was man. And so you see the writings of the early church fathers, Ignatius and others, defending the, the manhood of Jesus. But in the 21st century, it's the divine side of the equation that we have to protect. And so we are protecting the virgin birth because it is only through the virgin birth, it is only when God bypasses Adam and the sin of Adam that he is able to place a Savior who is unstained by any original sin. Remember, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. There is a viral infection that has infected all of us. We are sinners. We're not called sinners because we sin. We sin because that's our nature. We have inherited it as people. In order for there to be a perfect sacrifice, which is what is necessary, because if Jesus had a sin nature, it would be necessary for him to die to pay his own sins. In order for us to have a perfect Savior, the race of men had to be bypassed. Adam's work had to be bypassed. And so the second Adam, the perfect man, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, is sent to us through a virgin's womb through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The union of God and man without sin. So that Jesus Christ could die for us as the Savior of the world. The virgin birth isn't just some casual notion, some add-on, some quaint little doctrine. It is absolutely critical to our salvation because what we need is a Savior. At Preaching Today Audio, we strive to provide you with some of today's best sermons and workshops. If you've heard a message that is better than one you've heard today, send in a tape or CD of that message for review by our editorial team. If it's selected, you'll receive a free one-year membership to PreachingToday.com. Simply mail the tape or CD to Preaching Today, 465 Gunderson Drive, Carroll Stream, Illinois, 60188. Are you looking for new sermon illustration ideas? Break out of the box by visiting faithvisuals.com and preview hundreds of video illustrations for free. Comedies, documentaries, dramas, person-on-the-street interviews, they're all at faithvisuals.com. Find the video that fits your sermon topic or scripture, and you can download it immediately for a low price. Try faithvisuals.com today. Assisting with the production of this issue were Sarah Baldwin, Mark Dunn, Brian Larson, Brian Lowry, Brandon O'Brien, Travis Moser, and I'm your host, Eric Reed. Thanks for listening.